You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week we have one of the industry's biggest heavy hitters. She sits right at the top of the pile in the Real Estate Agents Association, Rewa. Everyone listening to this podcast has heard that acronym many times and relies on that institution for so much information that we should all be super grateful for given uh, just how much we rely on it, but also the lack of information that the rest of the institutes around the state provide to their members. We are very lucky in Western Australia to have an institution like Rewa and we're also very lucky to have someone like Kath Hart leading that these days as CEO. Kath, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Trent, and thank you for that very warm welcome. I've got so many questions I want to ask you today with regards to the impact Rewa makes as an organization and a little bit uh, about the challenges we have as an in- industry. But the first thing I want to do, just like we did with Tanya, is talk about another trailblazing female in the industry that people can look up to on a daily basis and talk about you and where you came from back in the day when you were just coming out of high school or graduating. I'd love to hear your story. Oh, thank you. Yeah, look, well, I'm from far north Queensland originally, grew up there and came down to Brizzy. Mum and dad were real estate agents in Airlie Beach. I grew up travelling around with dad to open homes, helping him to some extent on weekends, but I really got to see, I suppose... Helping without helping. Helping without helping, probably <laughs> yeah. probably just getting underfoot, to be honest. <laughs> yep. But really got to see firsthand the hard work that goes into running an agency, especially mum and dad, just them with their team um, in a regional, regional centre. So got to see that up close. And then we came down to Brisbane, where I finished high school. I always wanted to be a journalist. I think at the time, Yana Vent was on 60 Minutes and she was an iconic female journalist and I really admired her and thought that sounded like a really good career. So it sounds exciting to be a journalist, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It the reality does. is less exciting, I've learned over time though. <laughs> well, yeah, that's exactly less right. Less glamorous. Much less glamorous. I was really fortunate. I managed to get a job as a print journo at the Courier Mail, which was the daily paper in Brisbane. And I think I started there writing for the arts pages and went into general news and covered sport and business and politics over my career. But the thing about journalism that was fantastic and really great training was that similar to real estate, really, it's a really reward for effort based industry where if you pay attention, show up and try your best, you'll probably do okay, if not quite well. Mm. And you can be anyone from anywhere as well. So it doesn't really matter what your connections are when you go in. It's really about your ability to engage with people and build rapport and think critically about kind of current issues and find yarns, I guess. Well, yeah, that's right. I think when you're talking about the more you show up, same with real estate agents, for example, right? The more appraisals they do, hopefully the more listings they'll get and the more rewards that come with it. I guess the more stories you follow up and the more articles you write, the more opportunities you get from that too. That's exactly right. And it's also about those relationships, building on enduring relationships and connections with people so that you can stress test things with them. And when they do have a story, they'll call you. You'll, you'll be top of mind for them. So there's a lot of similarities. It was really interesting because it really showed me the importance of going to meet people in their own shop, or in their own house, getting into their environment so that you can understand more about them. That was one of the real key learnings from that part of my career that I've taken with me throughout the rest of my career. 
I was really fortunate to kind of work in a few different places as a journo. Eventually I left the Courier and went to the Australian newspaper and went to the Federal Press Gallery and was lucky in terms of the timing. I got to cover the end of the Howard years and the Mm. rise of Rudd, which certainly changed political reporting. It was the rise of social media in terms of political campaigning in Australia and a really interesting time to be charged with creating the public record of, of what was going on. So you left the home state. I assume you've had to go to Canberra, right? That's correct, yep. For a, a young person to leave their state in the first place, that's that's obviously something that can be quite daunting. But then putting yourself right into the mixer with all those ministers, I guess you build a big contact book being a journalist in the first place. But re- I, I guess you're stepping it up, right? Getting into the press gallery. It was so exciting. It was such a great opportunity. I was fortunate because the editor of The Australian at the time was a Queenslander as well. He, he liked the idea Bit of... a soft spot for another one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah bringing, bringing another Queenslander um, into the press gallery to provide that perspective. So uh, the gallery for The Australian, it, you know, federal politics and listed companies are really the engine room of the Oz, I think, at that time, certainly. So it was a great opportunity. It was very sink or swim. I certainly learnt a lot. And got to see politics up close at a time when there was significant change. And, you know, they, it is true what they say. You change the prime minister and you change the country. How old are you at this point in time? I would have been in my late 20s at that time. And this is where I'm assuming there's some gaps that a lot of people will be wondering. How does a girl from far north Queensland who moves to Brisbane, doesn't get into real estate? That's a real estate, firstly, a real estate crazy state. And then goes to Canberra and ends up in Perth. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I was in Canberra for a while, as I say, for the change of government, then went to Sydney and covered listed companies. And from there, a role came up in Perth, covering extractive industries here, listed companies in the mining sector. And I thought that that sounded like a pretty good opportunity. Is this still at the Australian? Still at the Oz, yeah. Yep. Uh, had never been to Perth before, but put my hand up for the job and was lucky enough to get it and jumped on a plane and headed over on a one-way ticket. I do remember sitting on the plane and they show you that map of Australia with the arrow of, you know, where you where you departed from and where you were going to. The flight to. path thing. The flight yeah, path, yeah, 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 that's right. And I do did have a moment thinking, gosh, it is a really, really long way from anywhere. <laughs> is this bravery or is this someone who's seeking a new adventure? What brings a girl who's always grown up on the East Coast to cross the state and set up shop? Look, it, it was actually around seeking adventure. I was, I was ready for something different. You know, I found, like, Sydney's a tough town to live in if you're a young kind of poor journo. Mm. Um, Can it be like living in a snow globe in a little way where it's all quite tight in and, and you feel there's a lot of pressure, a lot of noise? Yeah, that's right. And I think because I'd been covering listed companies, particularly extractive industries, I'd started to think more about Western Australia and it seemed like such an exciting and interesting place, like quite different to anywhere on the East Coast. Well, I suppose at the time it was, right? I guess you're talking about 2008, 9, 10, 11, this sort of time where, geez, anyone should have wanted to be in Perth at that time. Well, this was, it was interesting. I I ended up coming here just in the kind of thick of the GFC. Hmm. My editors in Sydney would say, we want to find a guy who's bought all the PPE in the world and it's in his back shed and he can't flog it now and his missus is really upset with him. And so I was like, okay, that sounds like a really pedestrian story and was asking around and the the feedback I got was really interesting from commentators and, and business owners here, which was that their view was by the time the GFC impacted Perth, it would be pretty much over. 
and things would pick up again and that we were well inoculated from it. Mm. Well, clearly we were, obviously. We didn't really have a GFC. We had our own uh, cyclical hit that uh, would have come through at a time, I'm assuming, you weren't even in journalism by then. That's right. But I think WA, for me, has always been quite fascinating. And the longer I've been here and the more I've seen of it, the more interesting it is to me. You know, a minerals-rich resource province such as Western Australia, we're so counter-cyclical to the rest of the economy nationally, but we're such a significant contributor. We have such interesting jobs here. We have such interesting industries here, and we're on the Indian Ocean Rim. Mm. You know, we're in the zone with some of the biggest markets in the world. So I think WA is one of the most fascinating places in the world. So it's good to hear an East Coaster saying those things. Can I ask, when you moved to Perth, where did you move to as a suburb? Did you rent an apartment? How did you dip your toes in the water? So many people, it's quite topical right now. This is a great question. So I didn't know, as I said, I'd never been to Perth before. I'd been living in a suburb called Annandale in Sydney, in a one-bedroom apartment. And I thought, well, I've got no idea where I'm looking, so I'll just go by price. And so I thought, well, whatever I was paying in Sydney, I'll pay in Perth. Jeez, that'd be right. Yeah. Well, yeah, at the time, at the time it was quite busy. There was kind of 20 people queuing up to, to look at rentals. Probably the vacancy rate was somewhat similar to, to the low level it's at now. So I went and looked at this one particular apartment on a little road called Bindering Parade in Claremont um, and thought... It's a quite a famous street. Yep. <laughs> I had no idea at the time and liked the apartment, made an offer a little bit above the asking price, which was to the same amount that I was paying in Sydney and fortunately got it. Couldn't move in for six weeks. Now, the apartment itself was uh, kind of halfway halfway along the street and I hadn't gone any further than that. So I thought, you know, went back to my service department and a few weekends later I thought, well, I should go and get to know the neighbourhood. So I <laughs> yeah. kind of went and had a look at, you know, went to the apartment and thought, oh, yeah, that's that there and thought, oh, well, I'll continue driving west and mm. drove, as, as listeners um, who are familiar with that part of the world will know, uh, kind of drove a, another couple of hundred metres west and got to Devil's Elbow, went round the corner and thought oh no, what have I done? I think I've probably just moved into the most expensive suburb yep. in Perth. <laughs> <laughs> you're literally a couple of hundred metres away from the apartment building I'm assuming you're talking about. You are right in the middle of Peppy Grove. It doesn't get any more expensive. The coffees, luckily for you though, aren't five times more expensive than here in the rest of the, the city. But look, I guess it's an opportunity to enjoy by virtue of the price point there, some fantastic views along the river some fantastic amenity towards Cottesloe. Claremont, it's not that bad to hang out in as well. Look, it was a very, very beautiful part of Perth to kind of begin my connection to the state. And, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs in that part of the world, a lot of people with listed companies, large and small, which was the business I was in when I first came here. So, yeah, so it was a great place to start. But I do remember that, that sinking feeling, driving around the corner, seeing this you know, my first thought was, wow, what an extraordinary view. And my second thought was, you've just made a very, very big mistake. Well, I don't know about that <laughs> because, you know, Gina Reinhart and Chris Ellison would have at that time been living within a kilometre of you. So, and you wouldn't have even known it. <laughs> <laughs> good networking for uh, good networking for a journo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, those are the people in Extractive Minerals you'd want to know, I think, as a journo. So when did you stop writing articles? Look, I was covering listed companies here for a little while. It's, it is, I have to say, pretty challenging with a three-hour time difference and a, and a deadline. And an opportunity came up to work for a state minister, treasurer at that stage, Troy Buswell, um, who I'm sure, you know... Very was, famous name now. Quite a notable name these days, quite notorious in, in some corners too. For me, the opportunity was really around transitioning into working 
for government, helping them shape communications. I worked with Troy and then subsequently with the former Premier Colin Barnett to shape the communications around their budgets and obviously their day-to-day media presence as well. So it was a big transition from journalism, but certainly fascinating and learned a great deal, both about media and communications and, and kind of public relations. But again, it just helped extend that fascination I have with Western Australia. I got mm. to kind of see how those decisions were made and learn a lot more about the state. Those machinations, I guess the nuances of where the power brokers sit, you would have learned that firsthand, I'm assuming. Some very cool secrets you'd know that not many people would know about how the world works in Western Australia, even those people that have grown up here for decades. Oh, look, I mean, I don't I don't know about that. I mean, I think it's always been interesting as a journal and, and in Canberra as well, and even Brisbane, just observers of politics uh, who who see how public sentiment shifts, who see how parties' sentiments about their leaders can shift as well. So I think for me personally, my training in journalism, I guess, gives me a perspective that these are all people businesses. Mm. So if you're interested in people and curious about people and and listen to what people are saying, you can kind of do reasonably well. And, and But that is really critical for understanding, I suppose, how a power works. Well, we think about the shift we've had these days. You know, we're probably many, many, many years away from seeing a Liberal government ever rise to power again in Western Australia. And I guess the communication piece about how they communicate, the, the Liberal Party, but also the Labor government now, that balance will be very different to what anyone's experienced for many years. The state of play in WA at the moment is is fascinating. But the thing about politics is things can change. You know, as they say, a day is a long time in politics. I think certainly the influence of this Labor government will be felt for a long time. I mm. guess I think the electorate would like to see when you've got significant power and, and, and few Im- impediments to implementing your agenda, I think the opportunity is there to to be bold and be visionary. and Make a, make a huge difference. Make a difference. And, and in a state like WA, there's just lots of, lots of really exciting opportunities that we can get after if we have that political will from the highest levels. I think there is. When I think about the nation-building projects that have, you know, things like Metronet, there's certainly a uh, runway there for multi-term projects. You see a lot of governments, they'll build just enough freeway for their term or just enough lanes on the freeway for their term and the next guy has to deal with the next. You think about the position they're in now, they can be planning for the next decade or so, which can really make some generational change, uh, especially when it comes to amenity, which has obviously a big effect on our property market. 100%. 100%. And that, that sound policy thinking, I think, saw WA launch the Infrastructure WA strategy, which is those projects which see through the political cycle, which see through multi-term governments so that we can be kind of having, regardless of what side is in power, we have our eye on the prize for making WA a better state to live and do business. Obviously, Mr. Barnett had his time. Mr. Buzzwell had his time. What was the next step for you after that? I left the Premier's office to go and have my second child. I had two children under two and was offered the opportunity to go and work at the Chamber of Commerce and decided that that sounded like a really good option and that the kids, they were all settled in daycare and so made the transition back into work. And it was fantastic. It was my first experience working inside a member-based industry association, working in advocacy. That experience was wonderful because it helped me really develop some pretty clear and enduring views about what the role of member associations is. 
and how they can add value to their membership. Communications again, right? So you've gone from that journalistic side, which can be investigative. It can also, when you get to Canberra, it can also really be something where you're targeting someone sometimes or you're pushing through a story, uncovering something, right? There can be some negative connotations to that. And then when you're working with the government, you're nearly advocating for them as well. You're trying to push a positive message, spin a story in a positive way so people can understand it better or can support it better. And then obviously pushing through to more clearly, as you said, an advocacy, again, messaging communications. It's great to see, I'm hoping everyone listening can start to put these pictures together where I'm sure back coming out of Ellie Beach, you had no idea you'd end up on the other side of the country working in these spaces. But again, you look back, there's a very clear pathway here that you're currently taking. Yeah, look, it, that, that, it is interesting to reflect. And I think for me, advocacy is around having great policy, great connection with your community, um, in, in this case, you know, the real estate sector for WA, but also being able to amplify your voice. So being able to communicate that. By amplify your voice, it doesn't mean shouting, it means connecting, it means communicating with the right language to the right audience at the right time. And through the right mediums. Exactly. Obviously, a lot of businesses have great messages to share, but I assume a lot of them would have hoped to have been able to share them in a much more effective way most of the time, right? So having the right communication strategy, whether you are an industry body or simply a commercial enter- enterprise, it can be the difference between success and, and lagging behind in, in terms of your goals. Exactly. And I think it's been very interesting for industry associations and, and advocates across the spectrum over the last 10, 15 years the rise of digital has disrupted those sectors as much as it has the taxi industry where you can have your competitors suddenly at a single issue organisations, people who are effectively keyboard warriors or people who don't have to kind of find consensus across an entire industry. They can be a small group of four or five businesses who suddenly are all aligned on one issue and get a PR agency to, mm. to be their advocate, to set up a kind of advocacy group for them. So I think that digital has certainly challenged some associations to think differently exactly on those, on, on those issues around how they communicate, around how they amplify their voice and around how they reach and influence those decision makers. And that obviously is very relevant with the way that Rewa communicates these days, which we're going to segue to pretty soon. Is HIA wedged in between these two positions? That's right. Yeah, that's correct. The job was advertised to take over as executive director of HIA, the Housing Industry Association, which represents the new build construction market exclusively focused on residential. So I put my hand up for that gig and was fortunate to be the preferred candidate and was incredibly fortunate in terms of the timing. I think I started there in November 2018, which gave me till early 2020 to get my feet under the desk and learn the ins and outs of the WA resi construction market. And then COVID hit. Mm. And what was a fantastic job suddenly was on steroids in terms of- Well, it's a nightmare for all your members, which means it's a nightmare for those people in your association. Exactly. But, you know, my message to the team was in times of stress and in times of crisis, our members need us more than ever. And they certainly did. The thing that I really took out of that period, though, was just how COVID really focused and clarified all the players in that decision making space around what the real issues were, what the big priorities were. And we were very, very pleased with how engaged and thoughtful the government were around some of the decision-making they were doing at that time. I've got some 
big questions to ask in this space before we even get to Rewa. Firstly, you said that it was a fantastic time to start, obviously, I guess, because it gave you some time to put your toes in the water before COVID, but 2018, 2019 were pretty much the worst years in history for building in Western Australia. It was about as dark as it got. A lot of the guys there were you know, a job away from closing up shop or lack of a job away. How did you see the industry at that point in time and how were you advocating for the industry in a time where not even the government, I think, could have incentivized many more people to demand more houses to be built. Yeah, it was, as you say, I, from a personal point of view, the timing was good in that it, it let me get my feet under the desk so that I was across uh, the issues such that when COVID hit, I was able to advocate effectively. But for industry, no, certainly it was incredibly challenging. The market was as flat as a tack and had been like that for five or six years. The effect of that was that it had winnowed out the supply chain effectively. We didn't have a pipeline of trainees and apprentices. We'd had a lot of people who'd left the industry who were skilled in construction trades who'd gone to work elsewhere and who weren't going to come back. Mm. Emotionally we, burnt, I think, as well, a lot of them. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we'd had suppliers who just shut up shop because they didn't need to service the WA market. The most diabolical stat that I can recall was that detached dwellings got down to 10,000 starts. Mm. Our long-term average is 22,000 starts. So that just is kind of example of, of how dire it was. Well, I mean, recent statistic that you guys reported at Rewa was that in the March quarter, and I'd love to see the June one. I'm sure you've got the data you can show me at some point. But in the March quarter, we sold 893 plots of land in a quarter, right? That would extrapolate out to less than 4,000 plots of land, which you've you got to build on those is less than 4,000 starts in a year. I have to ask, this is me jumping the gun here, but should the alarm bells not be ringing for the HIA builders in general? Obviously, they're very distracted right now trying to get everything they've got sorted out and built in a remotely acceptable time frame. But surely that pipeline is absolutely falling off the cliff at the end of the year. That's been the big question from the day the grants were announced. The discussions also began around whether this just you know, created a hollow log and brought forward a whole lot of demand and then... Vacuums everything the next four years up in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and I'd say, I don't know, I do, you know, I don't know if I if I did, I'd kind of be also guessing the lotto numbers, but I think builders at the moment are very focused on completions, just getting the projects out of the ground. There's still supply chain issues. There's significant cost escalation, as we all know, but the sales are still happening. There's just this kind of natural capacity constraint, I think, is what we've learned in WA that you know, our labour market can only service kind of certain number of builds at, at, at any time. Mm. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the course of the next 12 to 18 months in terms of interest rates and how that resonates here and whether we see investors coming back into this market. Because, I mean, the truth is, WA, we've got the lowest average median price, mm. some of the highest wages and great rental returns. Highest affordability. You've, you've noted so many factors that will affect how the building industry survives because you know it's great to see most of them have survived the last two years when we thought this is when they're going to fall but there's probably going to be that lagging tail of it at the end of the day where a lot of builders are staying alive by the next deposit for the next contract right that's keeping the cash flow running on the existing projects until they can get to the end i'm concerned that it's going to get, i'm concerned but also seeing an opportunity in the market the same way nathan blackburn spoke to in the last last few days uh, reported by Business News, where he's seeing there will be a light at the end of the tunnel for costs coming down in the next few months, right? And I've been saying that for the last few weeks is that if the land sales number is, is half of what chronically low was before COVID, half of that, 
then uh, the brickies are going to be knocking on the door at the end of the year. Prices have to start coming down, which is the sort of time where you start to see opportunities come up for those people who have been waiting to build. Also, the apartment built industry as well starts to get maybe see some opportunities on cost decreases. But further to that, building companies are probably going to have to start spending money marketing again. They haven't done that for a few years. But as you said, it's not only a demand constraint where people are probably a bit nervous to even talk to a builder right now because they're not sure if they'll be around six months from now. But there's also the same side where the builders aren't asking for the work either. They're just trying to get what they've got done. Yeah, look, I mean, I'd say from my perspective, anyone who's in the building game at February 2020, just before COVID hit, was running a very good business because they'd gotten through Mm. the valley of death of the past five to six years. So they'd really run the rulers over those businesses and, and made them as efficient and effective as possible. So I think that WA builders are quite resilient. It's an interesting market here. So, you know, apparently, you know, the top six or seven builders here represent about 60% mm. of the activity. On the East Coast, the biggest six or seven builders represent about 20 to 30% of the activity. So a very consolidated market here. Yeah, their focus is, is on getting projects out of the ground, dealing with those labour and material issues. It's a tough business, you know, fixed price contracts and dealing with the kind of massive cost escalation that everyone's experiencing yeah. that that's a tough game to be in i'm pleased that we haven't seen builders falling over and i think it is you know tribute you to that. no i mean i think as i say they had to be the become, ones that were left were already pretty solid companies they had to be very robust to yeah. have gotten through that really challenging time i remember speaking to some of the gms at some of those bigger companies we'd all know the names of at the time and when the grants came out they were saying we were already sort of recovering at that point in time. It would have, you know, the grants sort of helped, would have helped a little bit, but this amount of grants has really caused some structural issues. Looking back yourself, I'm assuming the commentary would have been, we welcome these grants. This is fantastic. Thanks a lot. But looking back, are you thinking that it was possibly too much of a sugar hit and has structurally had negative impacts? Or do you think overall we'll look back and go, it was a good thing? Look, I guess a couple of observations. One would be you'd have to go back before pre-COVID and the policy failure there was that we let the number of new build starts fall so far below its long-term average. So the long-term average is 22,000 starts. Mm. There should have been alarm bells ringing at about 15 and that's the time that you would look at putting you know, money into social housing, like stimulating the building market through social housing builds or even That would have been the there. cheapest time for the government to build it, right? And they now would. look at it, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I think you know, we've got to take a longer view and that that's probably the policy failure because that's what, that's what made it so hard to adjust to that kind of surge in demand, that we'd win out industry, we didn't have labour, we weren't set to kind of flex up. So that's one of the real policy lessons. And the other one for me, and I defend the grants because it's useful to remember that when they were announced, so there was a, the state government grant was announced, I think, first, and then the federal government was announced two days later. Mm. That was a Labor state government and a coalition federal government. They weren't necessarily kind of collab- collaborating yeah. on what the terms of those grants would be. So that's number one. But number two is, as a community, if if people cast their minds back, we were in lockdown when these policies were being developed. We were building a bridge into the dark. We didn't know how COVID would go in our community. We were seeing images of Italy and New York, for instance, where there were bodies in the streets, right? I think there was a lot of fear. People didn't know how COVID would go in our community. Also, we didn't know how consumers, how our community would react to big investment decisions. Would people even take up these grants? 
Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and they were real unknowns. What happened, as we all know, is that the grants were in fact a real green light for confidence in Western Australia. And I think that they were that catalyst for an overall recovery in sentiment in WA at that time. It was very hard to go from an historic low to an historic high. I often talked about we're drinking from a fire hydrant. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I think one of the things that people might do differently next time is look at a cap. The state government grant was uncapped. There was no way for the builders to have visibility of how much, how many sales their colleagues or their peers in the industry were writing. Mm. But if you did have visibility of that, um, you know, potentially the A Triple C might have yeah, something exactly. to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, look, I, I think uh, the intentions were right, and it was probably a perfect storm, unfortunately, of policies that went a little bit overboard, juxtaposed by an environment that the Labor government wasn't in control of beforehand, but certainly were aware of, of not incentivizing enough to, as you said, retaining enough supply capacity to actually fulfill the grants they have just incentivized. And now we're left in a position where there's nearly a negative perception on of trust in the, from consumers to builders uh, right now where you can see it in the numbers. There's very strong market right now in terms of affordability, there's strong demand, but it's all going towards the established market because no one trusts the building market and therefore we've got record, record, record low land sales as a function of a lack of trust of what they can actually build, when they can build it, who can build it, will they still be around in a year's time? I'd say it's around certainty that, you know, that's around right. what the timeframes will be. I mean, I think... And build- cost. And, and, and cost. Cost is a huge factor. That's right. And we have heard of people who have decided to kind of back out of new build contracts and go with the established, you know, go into an established dwelling instead. But I would say builders are doing a good job in terms of communicating those those issues to to their clients. I agree. And, yeah. and it's, they've it, done the best they can do in a, an environment they've never been in before. Exactly. We're not Robinson Crusoe with these issues in WA. This is These are global challenges, you know, timber supply, chain disruptions. It's not just specific to WA. And I think most consumers take a cursory look at the newspapers would see that this is not necessarily about builders being dodgy or, or gouging or not trying to get the houses out of the ground. It's actually around everyone grappling with this kind of post-COVID environment. That's exactly right. Yeah. Not a trust to the builders, but a trust in the outcome of the build is what I was referencing. Let's talk about Rewa and that move you've made now. It's a pretty historic move, isn't it? Because you've got some big boots to fill. I sure do. Neville Posse, the outgoing CEO, was with the organisation for 45 years. And I admire Neville immensely. Um, I had good fortune to work with him both when I was at CCI and at HIA and I'm uh, catching up with him again in a few weeks just to darken his doorstep and find out kind of his intel and his analysis on a couple of key issues as well so yeah very big shoes to fill very big shoes to fill but he you know I I reckon I've probably got the best job in town because he's certainly got the institute into such a sustainable position. As I referenced at the start it's something that we should all be very grateful for and that there are really no other institutes in the country that have so much influence and help so many people with their data and make such a difference to their members right it's it's quite unique it is really unique it's unique in terms of not just institutes around the country but also i think member associations i would say that uh, re was potentially one of the strongest in the country and so that's why i'm so proud and excited to be Mm. able to lead the team uh, and to represent the membership so i think that rewa.com is a wonderful, wonderful asset for the Institute and allows us to provide such great service to our members and great support to our members and obviously helps us gather 
such insightful, relevant and timely data about mm. the market in WA. Data is power, right? And that's where the difference is. These guys are across the other side of the country would not have remotely any of the data that you've got on your own market. What is the mission statement there for? What do you understand is your role as CEO of Rewa? How do you make a difference? And by extension, how does the organization make a difference to not only its members, but the, the cool thing is about Rewa, it's paid for by its members, obviously, but it really serves the whole community, not just the real estate agents. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, yeah, I think the mission is around, you know, helping everyone win in real estate in WA. For me, specifically as CEO, the role has a kind of particular mandate, and that is to build on that wonderful, sustainable footing that the previous CEOs have have helped create. For the next chapter under my stewardship, what I'll be really focusing on is raising our profile in terms of our advocacy and our lobbying, which means making sure that the policy settings are right so that, as you said, that both on the practitioner side and on the community side, everyone can transact in a straightforward way that isn't kind of encumbered by too much red tape, that doesn't attract onerous, inflexible taxes Mm. such as things like stamp duty, so that we have the right settings in place. And, And you're absolutely right. I also chair the housing industry forecasting group which provides feedback to government around how many starts we think there'll be each year in terms of the new build market but it also provides commentary around what's happening across the whole housing continuum and what I know is that whenever anyone transacts at any point of the housing continuum whether that is building social housing building their own home moving into an established home or becoming an investor and letting somebody else rent in the private market that it has an impact across the whole continuum. But it particularly, you know, it, when you've got activity across all points, it helps those most vulnerable West Australians. Where does your line go to? Does it go to mainly you're talking to the planning minister, Safiotti, you're talking to the treasurer, or by extension, the premier uh, as well in this? Who is a stakeholder here that Kath Hart should have the ear of? Look, we talk to all of government. Our key ministers are probably the Commerce Minister, Roger Cook, who has carriage of the relevant acts for the real estate sector and in particular consumer protection. Obviously, Mm. the Residential Tenancies Act review is underway at the moment. Well, we have to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And then the Treasurer, who is obviously at this stage the Premier as well, the Minister for Communities, Simone McGurk, and the Minister for Housing, John Carey. We work with them closely. But equally, as you said, our data is really rich. So we kind of also share insight and data with MPs on an electorate by electorate basis as well. That's really helpful. And look, it can't hurt, can it? The more data they've got, the better decisions they can make, whether they're talking directly to you guys or not. How is your job different to Damien Collins' job at the moment? He's the president, obviously a bit more of a head of state style job. I'm assuming you hear a lot, of, lot from him in the paper, on TV, those sort of things regards to updates on the market. How does your job differ there in terms of your influence at the top of the body? Yeah, so Damien is our president at the moment, so he's effectively chairman of my board mm-hmm. and he his term comes to an end in October and at that point we will transition. So the CEO, me, I will become the media spokesperson for the organisation in the majority of forums. We, you know, the president still retains an incredibly important role representing the practitioners in industry though, so I'll certainly be in lockstep with whoever the, the, the next president is. They'll continue to kind of participate in you know our advocacy meetings with key stakeholders and also to do commentary where it's relevant so that'll be a bit of a shift that yeah it sounds well. like a massive shift 
because we've heard a lot of a lot from him you know there's there'd be thousands of of media segments in the last few years that damien spent what would have spent so much time on is this more of an administrative thing so that the president probably has a bit more time to do president things and work on their own business as well which is because it is not a full-time job and you can represent the organization as ceo as you probably should that's certainly part of the strategy where with my remit to kind of raise our profile in terms of our advocacy and our lobbying it makes sense to say then the person who fronts the you know who is the spokesperson for the organization becomes the ceo Hmm. which is not to say though that we won't hear from the president anymore at all they still will play an incredibly important role in that advocacy and commentary as well i think damien's done an outstanding job and the better he does probably the more media he gets <laughs> yeah uh, he's, think, he's done a great job yeah. he's done an outstanding job and look i think people will still hear from damien as a practitioner as somebody who has his own businesses as well um but yeah from rewa's perspective that's kind of a shift that will happen as part of the um you know the transition to a new ceo i've been very thankful to have a few months to get my feet under to the desk and work out um, who's who in the zoo before that kicks off. But I'm also really quite excited about it because, you know, it comes at a fascinating time for WA. Oh, it does. It's so it's fantastic opportunity here to make some positive differences. So let's talk about the first one, which is staving off what the hell is going on with the Rental Tenancies Act. How did that get to this point, Kath? Oh, uh, look, I, I don't know what went before me. We're really concerned about it. Happily, we met with the Premier and um, Minister Cook recently and shared with them our concerns. And our concerns are really that whilst some of the proposals are well-meaning or well-intentioned, that they'll have unintended consequences of actually harming the most vulnerable people in the community, the very people that they're notionally designed to protect. They seem like they're written by people who have never owned a property before, understand the dynamic between landlord and tenant, as if the landlord's some big bad person and the tenant's always the victim. The data shows that 90% of property investors are just mum and dad they investors. Are. That's right. This is this is their retirement fund. Their their teachers, their doctors, their FIFO workers. These are not large corporations that you know need to be held to account. So it makes me wonder how does it get to a point where people have sat around the room at Department of Consumer Protection in the first place and thought this is a good idea, and then gotten all the way to here. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think the proposals have been developed. By looking at other jurisdictions, you know, we've seen this come in in a couple of other states. We think about Queensland, what a debacle that's turned out to be. Well, and I think that that's part of the opportunity for Western Australia is to learn what has worked and what hasn't worked. But to your question, how, 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 where has this come from? I think that people have looked around the country and gone, okay, well, we can propose these things here. Mm. Our job as an institute and advocates is to say to the decision makers, which is the people around the cabinet table, look, you may well consider these proposals, but what you need to know is that here's what we understand the impacts to be. And so Mm. I'm really proud. I'm very proud that REWA has invested in the synergies report that we did around what the economic impacts would be. And we did, as part of that, we did a survey. We got 7,000 responses from people who own an investment property in Western Australia. And I was shocked a, by the quantum, you know, very pleased and surprised at the quantum of responses that we got. But I was deeply concerned when we realised that the report showed that 61% of those property owners said they would be likely to sell mm. that investment property if these changes came in. And that just tested two changes. That was around changes to um, no grounds evictions and allowing tenants to make 
so-called minor modifications without the approval of the landlord. And, you know, there's many, many more recommendations. We just well, tested pets, those Well, for two. example, is massive, isn't it? H- how can anyone be able to get about in an apartment without being held to check for bringing a great dad in the house? It, it doesn't make sense to me. At the end of the day, this is a mum and dad putting their financial side on the line. It is a business and investment for their little space there and they cannot be protected. That's exactly right. And I, I think at the moment, you know, you look at the rental vacancy rate is 1.1%. Yeah. And that's pretty much an all-time high for the last four years, right? So the thing that we need at the moment is to encourage investors into the WA market. Frankly, what we need most is people who are willing to own a house that they let someone else live in. We don't need to be discouraging them. We don't need to be, you know, in a market too where you think prices are reasonably good, interest rates are rising. There's actually other factors that might convince an investor to sell anyway, That's let alone right. making making the regulatory conditions too onerous for them to bother. It's counterintuitive to the current market to think about making it less incentivized to buy an investment property and provide supply to an already chronically undersupplied rental market, which leads us to one of the next most important advocacy spaces we've spoken about off air of in the past is stamp duty. Not only is there currently a policy sitting there on the Premier's table to disincentivize more supply, but there's continually still an environment there where we've got a first home buyer's rate of duty threshold that is of four or five years ago that really needs to be updated. What's going on there? Has the fellow had a listen to what everyone's got to say? Is he too busy or is there a reticence to move in with the times? On stamp duty, I know it, it's been something that the Institute has long campaigned on. I know the Premier has ruled out reform in that area for the time being. I think it's certainly an opportunity down the track, but I mean, politics is always the art of the possible. So we'll continue to build the case. We saw, pleasingly, New South Wales come out and, you know, they're looking at a model as well, which certainly will help us to continue to make the case for reform. Mm. And the, the new treasurer, Jim Chalmers, federally, has also indicated he's got some appetite for reform in that space. And I know our colleagues at REIA, the national, our national body, are also kind of leaning in on their Axe the Tax campaign. Our former REWA president, Hayden Groves, is now the national president as well. It's so quite convenient for us, isn't it? It's, well, we're very, very well placed. So stamp duty is one of those things that, yeah, we will continue to campaign on. The prospect of that changing in the short term I have to say, is limited. But that doesn't mean we back away from it. Of we course. certainly continue to make the case. As these two issues here seem to me to be the most critical in that with the Tennessee's Act reforms, if we can push back on most of these happening and put them in the bottom drawer, that will demonstrate straight away the difference in influence that Rewa has versus, for example, their counterpart in Queensland who couldn't get, obviously would have tried and couldn't get that thrown out. And the the same space here is that going forward, reducing the barriers to home ownership. If you've got limited rental supply, you should be doing everything you can in the lower quartile of, of house prices to incentivize purchasing opportunities for those people who otherwise would have rented and go, oh, maybe I can buy here. How do you do that? By increasing the breadth of what lower quartile looks like and increasing the threshold from 430 to a median house price. It is it's so logical to me. Look, that's right. And I think we often see where people have a prescriptive kind of threshold of, of you know, 430 rather than as a as a percentage of a median or as a percentage or of a moving marker. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Who that's decided exactly 430 right. was appropriate at the time and is no longer now? And why at no point in time, I remember looking at an article, even sending it to you, it was the 
president back in 2006 who was suggesting this should be indexed to the median house price. We are 16 years on from that and still we are stuck with a threshold that is a hundred and something thousand dollars lower than what the median is right now, which means there's a gap there. There's a gap there of people who would have had the ability to buy in that space, but otherwise do not because of the imposition of duty in that in that price point. It's, it's a shame in my opinion and it needs to be fixed. I think that's right. And I think in WA, we're certainly well placed to kind of address some of these issues, given that we have such strong revenue streams from iron ore royalties in Mm. particular. This is the time where you build the extra hospital, you fix payroll tax, you fix stamp duty, those sort of things. This is the opportunity where he's ever got the the, the time there. But anyway, we leave that to yourself, Kath, to continue to toil away with and and hopefully for not too many years. Any other things on the agenda for EWA to improve the lives of both its agents and the rest of us homeowners? There's a couple of other issues that I'm looking at at the moment. One of the big things I've observed and I think that, you know, is going to be a real personal priority for me is around supporting members in regards to cyber security. Mm. We've seen a lot of cases lately around these man-in-the-middle scams where transactions are being intercepted. My observation is that there's a lot of under-reporting because people are ashamed. We've seen it. Among, you know, as In the settlement agency we have here at Strategic, we've, uh, we've certainly seen agencies who have been caught yeah, yeah and talk, talking to members, um, you know, I've heard horrible cases of people, you know, there was one transaction where $300,000 was intercepted. The other thing, though, is people don't really know what to do because it's a really fast-moving space. So we are looking at a kind of key partnership at the moment with one of the universities which has significant expertise in this area so that we can scope out an industry-specific study and also just helping members with, you know, basic templates around what your policy should be, what best practice should be, what to do if something happens. And I'm hoping we can roll that out over the coming 12 to 18 months Mm. because I see it as one of the biggest reputational risks for industry. The answer in the meantime is probably just education. There's a lot of agents that you've got some agencies that are working at really high levels of uh, technical support. And then you've got your mum and dad real estate agents who are still rolling off their big pond email account. You know, I've seen that still, right? And so some people have already learned never put bank accounts in email addresses, for example, and in your signature, tell every single client of yours you never will. Unfortunately, others are still getting caught out, as you said. But I have seen it in our CPDs. So I'm pretty sure we're still, we should be learning about this on an annual basis already. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, I think, you know, there are people who still are unsure what to do you know people who think that email is the best way to go but we've seen invoices intercepted where they've even changed the phone number and they say please call this phone number to verify the account details but of course you're calling the hacker so it is a really challenging space and talking to members who have been affected by this it's very upsetting for them because they don't want their clients to have that experience Um, so so I'm personally quite invested in supporting them through that process and the other program we have that I really love is our community reinvest program tell us about that It's a partnership that we've got with the Salvation Army. So members pay an additional 10 bucks a week. So cost of... Couple of coffees. Couple of coffees. And it goes to the Salvos. And we've raised a million dollars since 2013. And that really goes to our social license to operate where we can help those people who can't necessarily move into home ownership yet. People who are vulnerable, people who are coming out of family domestic violence situations. That money to the Salvos makes a huge difference. We went and visited the Beacon the other day, which the Salvos run, which provides emergency care for people in WA. And um, it was really moving to see how members' contribution makes such a big difference to them. So that's another program that I really love. And we also do tenancy training, which we haven't talked a lot about. I've never heard of this. Well, 
we provide tenancy training again through some of those shelters and for people who are coming out of homelessness or who haven't never had a lease before, they've never had to do that. And to just explain, you know, here's the practical ways for you to be a good tenant. At the end of that, they get a certificate that they can show to REWA members who hopefully will recognise that and say, okay, mm. this is somebody that, you know, has done the tenancy training who we can give a, you know... Give them a crack, yeah. Give them a crack, yeah, and help them into shelter. And I think that's really important. And we, we don't kind of tend to talk a lot about that part of what we do, but I'll certainly be highlighting it going forward because it's a really idea. important contribution to the community. Look, I like to think that I know most about this industry and I'd never heard of that program specifically. So it shows having yourself at the top of the tree as the mouthpiece should uh, certainly help to get those good messages out there. And the, the, you're right, the reality is... A lot of members in Rewa have very privileged positions financially. They work bloody hard for it. But the fact that there is these programs to be able to give back, I think it's the right thing to do, especially in a time now where, ironically, there are more more people than ever that are struggling at the lower end when we're in a time where finally you'd think this industry is on the way up. There's, there's still people getting left behind. So I love the fact that we're going to continue to talk about this going forward. A few years from now, what have we achieved, do you think, at Rewa as an organization? What's changed? I guess technology is going to be a big part of that. If I can talk to the market as well, do you think this is a long-ranging cycle that talking to the people at your level on a daily basis is the feedback that there's confidence going forward? Look, we just had a briefing today from the Reserve Bank about the national picture and also the picture in WA. I still think I would prefer to be in Western Australia with the median house price of $530,000 versus Sydney where it's $1.6 million when we go through interest rate rises, which look like peaking at about 3% towards the end of this year. Mm. I know where I would want to be putting my money. So I still think WA is well-placed. There's not that frothy activity that we've been seeing. That FOMO feel, yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm getting from the agents as well. I'm sure you talk to many on a daily basis. That's I'm sure you're getting the same feedback. That's right. That's right. But I mean, but it's still ticking along. We're not back in the doldrums. It'll be interesting to see how things like international migration begin to play out for WA and whether with the rate rises over east, we do begin to see more investors coming back into WA. We certainly need them. So I still think WA is quite well placed. We've already seen activity coming off in Sydney and Melbourne, but but here, it, you know, it's, it's been very stable. When you think about Rewa's reporting on transactions on a weekly basis, we peaked up at around 1,100 transactions for a few months early last year, and it's been very steady between 900 and 1,000 for a good year and a half now. And that, you know, when you think about how that compares to the last boom, that averaged 800 transactions a week. When I talk about how important RERA is to the community, it's extremely important to me. My life is built around data, right? And I use this data every single week. How many transactions do we have representing demand? How many properties are on the market representing supply? If you track that every single week, which you can do with Rewa, you can form a very, very solid understanding of where our market has come from, where it is, and hopefully where it can continue to go. So supporting and leading a business like this, I just think is would be such a rewarding job, Kath, and, and such an important job as well. Yeah, look, as I say, it's so exciting. And, and I do think that the opportunity for Rewa as an organisation and, 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 you know, and for our community is that we become some of the most influential and impactful advocates in Western Australia. I think we already are. And, and it's really what can we do with that going forward? Kath Hart, CEO of Rewa, it's an absolute privilege to have you on the Perth Property Show. I hope we can chat to you again in the future to just 
get some updates on where things are at. Thanks for your time. I'm sure that everyone listening will be absolutely buzzing to have had the last hour with you. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity, Trent. I really, really appreciate it. Yes, and look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!